0: Welcome to Rare Nautical Reads, with me Chris Major. In this episode, we're starting a new book. We're reading The Bombard Story by Dr. Alain Bombard, and this translation is by Brian Connell. Forward. Early one morning, in the spring of 1951, I was asleep in the residence quarters of the hospital at boulogne sur mer when the telephone rang. Is that the house surgeon? What is it? A ship has been wrecked on the Carnot breakwater. I'll come at once. Grumbling to myself, with no inkling of how serious the accident was, I dressed quickly and hurried down to the casualty ward. No patients had yet arrived. I asked the night porter what had happened, and he told me that a trawler, the Notre Dame des Pierrogues, from the little port of Equiem, had missed her course in the mist and had hit the outer end of the Carnot breakwater. This outer mole of the harbour is very dangerous in bad weather but easy to scale at other times as there are ladders every 20 yards along its face. The weather was cold, but the sea was calm and I was not unduly anxious. Then came the sound of the siren of the fire engine. The double doors were thrust open and I took a couple of steps towards the entrance, full of my own importance. I shall never forget the terrible spectacle of those 43 men, piled one on top of the other like dislocated puppets, their feet bare and each still wearing a life belt. In spite of all our efforts, we failed to revive a single one. An error of navigation lasting a few moments had caused 43 deaths and orphaned 78 children. I think it was at that moment that the full measure of tragedy conjured up by the word shipwreck was brought home to me. The seed was sown for what developed into the expedition of L'Hérétique, or in English, the heretic. Shipwreck became for me the very expression of human misery, a synonym for despair, hunger, and thirst. Boulogne alone lost between 100 and 150 fishermen every year, and I discovered that throughout the world, in time of peace, more than 200,000 men and women suffered the same fate. More than a quarter of them, having survived disaster and reached the boats, died afterwards, in mortal agony. For some time I had made a study of the resistance of the human organism to privations, and had convinced myself that it was possible for an individual to survive beyond the limits normally assigned by the physiological science. I had paid particular attention to the case histories of political deportees, prisoners and undernourished populations, but with my background as a doctor, for whom the teachings of science remain a dead letter, unless they can find practical application, my theoretical studies only seem to lead to the question, what use can be made of this knowledge? The problem of shipwrecked survivors found its natural place in such a study. It had one special characteristic. The external conditions contributing to this particular form of human misery were not, as in the case of prisoners and the like, due to the malice of man, about which nothing can be done, and nor were they due, like the famines of the Far East, to natural disasters, such as drought, against which one can do very little. They depended on a natural element, dangerous without doubt, but nevertheless rich enough in the necessities of life to ensure survival until the arrival of aid or the sighting of land. There are nearly 200 times as many living organisms in a cubic foot of water as in the same amount of earth, and although the sea represents a constant danger to the shipwrecked man it is not malicious, and it is certainly not sterile. The conquest of fear and the search for sustenance should not present insurmountable difficulties. That was my basic premise as far as the environment was concerned. I had also become convinced that in their studies of the capacity of the human organism to survive in such circumstances, the physiologist had not made enough of willpower and its influence on physical reactions. It is only necessary to recall the fasts of Gandhi, The polar expeditions of scott and amundsen and the voyage of captain bligh who lived for 40 days on eight days provisions sustained by his hate for his mutinous crew it is not a question of survival being possible in certain defined conditions but rather to use the formula so dear to mathematicians other things being equal thus allowing latitude for the effect of the will by which i understand courage and the determination to live survival is certain if specific physical conditions are met. I turned back to my statistics again. Could nothing be done to save these 50,000 people who die every year in lifeboats, and if so, what? At first, the classic stories of shipwreck which I then began to study seemed to rule out the possibility of any additional factor turning the scale. The frigate Le Meduce was lost on the 2nd of July 1816, on a sandbank about a 100 miles off the African coast. 149 of the survivors, passengers, soldiers and a few officers, had to trust themselves to a hastily constructed raft, towed by the ship's boats. The tow broke, in circumstances which have never been explained, and the raft was abandoned to the fury of the Atlantic. There were six barrels of wine and two of fresh water on board, but the raft was not sighted again until 12 days later. By then, there were only 15 survivors, 10 of whom died shortly after rescue. On the 15th of April 1912, the liner Titanic hit an iceberg in the North Atlantic and sank in a few hours. When the first relief ships arrived, three hours after the liner had disappeared, a number of people had either died or gone mad in the lifeboats. Significantly, no child over the age of 10 was included among those who had paid for their terror by madness, And for their madness by death. The children were still at the age of reason. These examples confirmed for me the overwhelming importance of morale. Statistics show that 90% of the survivors of shipwreck die within three days, yet it takes longer than that to perish of hunger and thirst. When a ship goes down, a man's whole universe goes with it. Because he no longer has a deck under his feet, his courage and reason abandon him. Even if he reaches a lifeboat, he is not necessarily safe. He sits, slumped, contemplating his misery, and can hardly be said to be alive. Helpless in the night, chilled by sea and wind, terrified by the solitude, by noise, and by silence, he takes less than three days to surrender his life. How many castaways, through the ages, have become stiff and sudden corpses, killed not by the sea, not by hunger or thirst, but by their own terror. I became convinced that most of them had died long before the physical and physiological conditions had of themselves become fatal. How was one to combat despair, a far more ruthless and efficient killer than any physical factor? Part 1. The Plan Takes Shape Chapter 1. Sponsor Towards the end of September 1951, One of my rivals in that year's attempts to swim the English Channel, Jean van Hamsbergen, suggested we should go sailing together. He was trying out a new type of dinghy. As soon as my turn of duty at the hospital was ended, I joined him on the beach where I found him about to launch an inflatable rubber dinghy. The floats were shaped like a horseshoe, the open end closed by a wooden sternboard. It was the forerunner on a smaller scale of the heretic, the boat in which I made the voyage described in this book. We set off at about four o'clock in the afternoon to test the outboard motor. It was a lovely day. What about making for Folkestone, Jean suggested. Yeah, it seemed a splendid idea, so we set off north-northwest steering for the South Foreland and picking up flashes of its lighthouse as night fell. The wind rose and the sea became quite rough, but the little hitchhiker, as the dinghy was called, behaved admirably and we entered Folkestone Harbour about eleven o'clock. I had no passport, but the British authorities did not raise any difficulties. The weather quickly deteriorated, and soon it was blowing half a gale out of the North Sea. In spite of the confidence we had in the dinghy, we thought it better to wait for the wind to die down. We did venture outside the harbour once, but it seemed madness to continue, so we turned back. The gale showed no signs of abating, and I realised that the hospital would be getting worried. I had sent off a telegram to tell them where I was, but I still felt I should get back for duty, as my spell as house physician did not end until the 1st of October. Ignoring advice, we decided to risk it and set off at 9 o'clock the next morning. We almost gave up at the harbour bar, but it was, after all, a lifeboat we were trying out, and survivors do not choose the weather in which to be shipwrecked. Nine times out of ten, when they have to take to the boats, it is in the middle of a storm. We met the sea head-on and expected at any moment to have the motor swamped, but everything went well. Hitchhiker rode the waves magnificently, and on we went across the channel quite free of its normal traffic. After several narrow escapes, we reached the bay at Wissant at about six o'clock in the evening. The dinghy had proved its worth. We were met on arrival by a man who was to become for some time my patron and backer. He was a Dutchman, well known as an expert in salvage and life-saving equipment, a big fellow about six feet tall and weighing all of 350 pounds. He had a fine, open face, great powers of persuasion and a frank nature, or so I thought at the time. We took to each other at once, and in the course of our conversations over the next few days, he put forward the idea of establishing a grant which would enable me to work out in detail, in a laboratory, my half-formed theories on the possibilities of survival at sea. I was to establish scientifically the minimum necessary intake of food and drink, and then we would all three set out on a sea voyage to prove that we had found the means of saving future castaways from despair. I was also to map out a possible course, while our sponsor would see to the provision of the necessary equipment. We decided that it ought to start on my studies at the Museum of Oceanography in Monaco, and that our expedition would take place about the end of the year. Fate then took a hand. I began my experiments earlier than I expected by becoming a castaway, as people usually do, against my will. Before leaving for Monaco, Van Hemsbergen and I were due to make a quick trip to England for the wedding of one of our friends. On Wednesday the 3rd of October, while we were trying out a new motor in the dinghy off Wissan, it broke down about three miles north-northwest of Cape Grenos, and we started to drift. We had only been making a short trial and we had neither on board a sail nor any other means of propulsion. The wind was from the north-northeast and drove us along for two days and three nights, with no hope of approaching land. Although the coast was out of sight, we knew we must be drifting roughly parallel to it, and that, after the mouth of the Somme, it turned west again, so we were not unduly worried. With any luck, we should end up between Saint-Valéry and Dieppe. Finally, on the Friday, at about nine o'clock in the morning, we sighted a trawler, the Notre-Dame de Clerge, and tried to head towards it by using the dinghy's waterproof cover as a makeshift sail. Modest resources are often the way out of great difficulties, a lesson which was not lost on me. For two days, van Hemsbergen had drunk nothing at all, and I on the other hand had taken a little seawater to quench my thirst, knowing that in such quantities I ran no risk. The only food we had was a pound of butter, which one of us had brought on board by pure chance, and butter is not exactly the thing to quench one's thirst. The trawler picked us up, and von Hemsbergen buried his head in a bucket of fresh water. Convinced that I too must be thirsty, I did the same, but at the second swallow I stopped. I found that I was not really thirsty. Thanks to my regimen of seawater, I had not become dehydrated, and in fact needed no drink. It was a striking example of the way in which preconceived ideas can influence the organism to the point of inducing an apparent need where none really exists. Three days later, I read in one of the local newspapers, Alain Bombard, picked up half-dead from hunger near St. Valéry. People were already beginning to dramatise my activities, in spite of the fact that when we had hurried to catch a plane at Le Touquet in order not to miss the wedding in England, we had obviously been in quite good form. Nevertheless, the authorities were on our trail. I was soon involved in the first act of a scenario which provided, at the most unexpected moments, A number of vexatious episodes, both during my preparations and the actual voyage. I have called it, with apologies to Courteline, the comic interlude. The first scene took place in an office full of desks, each piled high with papers. Behind one of them, a naval captain sat pontificating. I was given a chair in front of him, like a naughty schoolboy who refuses to acknowledge his guilt. Do you realise that you have committed an offence in leaving territorial waters without a navigation permit? But a certain latitude is granted to small boats. That is so, but only those described as beachcraft, and it is not stated anywhere that they may leave territorial waters. Is it stated that they may not? There is nothing in the regulations about that. Well then, but my interrogator put an end to the interview by saying, In any case, it is quite impossible to overlook your continual infringements. Are you not going to take into account the fact that I was only a passenger and that the owner was on board? I am under no obligation to answer you. I will let you know my decision in due course. We parted on bad terms, but as at the end of each of these episodes, there was some compensation. In the waiting room, I met another naval captain, a real seaman this time, named Mapo, who greeted me warmly and said, well done, old chap. Chapter 2 Purpose I arrived in Monaco on the 19th of October and went to pay my respects at the Museum of Oceanography with a request that I might be included among the research workers to whom they allowed the use of a laboratory. I was received by the Deputy Director, Monsieur Belloc, whose interest in my experiments never wavered and who has remained my good friend. I was at once given all the facilities I needed and wasted no time in getting down to work. It will be easier for readers to follow the events described in this book If they bear with me first in an account of what was known and what was thought to be known on the subject of saving life at sea when i started my detailed studies the expedition itself first through part of the mediterranean and then across the atlantic was merely an attempt to prove in practice what i was already sure of in theory after my laboratory work on the subject unless i state now what i was setting out to prove the incidents of the voyage would lose their point It is essential to give certain facts concerning nutrition the reactions of the human organism the contents of the sea and the characteristics of certain fish all this had to be studied before i set off and i hope i am right in thinking that a short account of it will be more useful here than if it were tucked away in an appendix shipwrecks fall into two categories those that occur on the coast and those on the high seas Of the 200,000 human beings who die every year as a result of accidents at sea, just over half lose their lives in coastal wrecks. Assistance is usually at hand for the survivors, through the devoted labours of the lifeboat institutions in each country. On the high seas, the situation is different. Here about 50,000 unfortunates die each year, more or less at the moment their ship goes down. That leaves another 50,000 who might have been saved. They, in their turn, fall into two categories. There are two sorts of ship. First, the big liners and naval vessels in permanent radio contact with land the whole time they're at sea. If one of them found us, everyone knows almost exactly where the disaster has happened, and other ships hurry to the rescue. We've seen the example of the Titanic. What the survivors need is simply a morale injection to enable them to regard rescue as a certainty. The problem of a prolonged fight for survival hardly presents itself. Then comes the other types of vessel. Cargo boats, tramps, deep-sea trawlers, fishing boats and yachts. Normally, their radio contact with land is limited to a fixed rendezvous every 6, 12 or sometimes only every 24 hours. Between each signal, they may cover a considerable distance. If something happens to them, their exact position is difficult to determine, and the lot of the survivors is correspondingly grim. These are the men and women who are always uppermost in my thoughts and whom my experiment was designed to assist. To my dismay, I discovered that relatively little is done for them. If their ship goes down, they are considered as lost. Only in the most favourable circumstances does a search last for as long as ten days, and even then very little hope is entertained of sighting them. After ten days, it has become usual to abandon the search on the grounds that there is no longer any hope of finding them alive. The explanation given is that neither human being nor equipment can be expected to hold out longer than that. My object was to give these unfortunates a better chance of reaching land. Several thousand widows less per year seemed to me an objective fully justifying the risk of one life. My research work Came under five headings. I looked up every possible reference on number one, the history of previous shipwrecks and the lessons to be learnt from them, number two, the case histories of survivors, number three, fish and their chemical composition, number four, the various methods of catching fish, and number five, the study of favourable winds and currents. At the same time, I tried out on myself in the laboratory various experiments with abnormal food while Van Hemsbergen, who had come to join me, concentrated chiefly on the study of the best type of craft for our purpose. The whole ground had to be carefully covered. Over a period of six months, the day's work varied from the chemical analysis of seawater to a minute study of the various types of plankton, together with a laborious analysis of the chemical composition of different species of fish. I took as my basic premise the fact that although a lifeboat or life raft may, in theory, be equipped with every conceivable type of apparatus, much of it might have been washed overboard by the time it was required. Almost on the first day, I managed to turn up a basic document in the latest issue of the Bulletin des Hermes du de Musée Oceanographique. It was a reprint of a report made to the Paris Academy of Sciences on the 17th of December, 1888 by Prince Albert I of Monaco, himself the founder of the museum. I consider it useful to communicate to the academy, the prince had written, an account of certain striking investigations of ocean fauna carried out in conjunction with other scientific studies over the last four years by Le Irundel. Experiments over 1888 proved conclusively that an abundance of sea fauna could be caught during the night hours. A fine silk net, with an opening of about 8 feet, towed on the surface for about half an hour, always brought in a considerable quantity of fish, and about 4.5 inches of edible organic matter. A simple landing net of the same material about 20 inches wide, plunged at night into one of the shoals of jellyfish often encountered in the Atlantic, would bring up about 1 cubic inch of the small crustaceans, Hyperia, lateraliae, which are usually to be found in their company. In the Sargasso Sea, there is a whole family of marine life to be found hidden amongst the fronds of the floating seaweed in this area. It is made up of both crustaceans and fish, in even greater quantities than those just mentioned, but they are often not perceived at first glance because of their similarity in colouring to the weeds themselves. During the months of July and August 1888, Hirendelle made a study of the occurrence of tunny fish up to a distance of 600 leagues to the west and southwest of Europe. Two lines with artificial bait caught 53 tunny fish with a total weight of 1,000 pounds. Submerged wrecks and flotsam, sufficiently old to have attracted barnacles, are always accompanied by quite sizeable fish. Six such objects were inspected in July and September and it was possible to catch 28 sea perch with a combined weight of 334 pounds. During this and previous seasons, there was no difficulty in catching almost any amount of these fish, 331 pounds on one day alone, without seeming to diminish the numbers round the wreck in any way. This report made it quite clear that shipwrecked survivors in the North Atlantic and probably any other ocean in the temperate regions could escape death by starvation if they had the following equipment. 1. number One-, one or several nets of straining cloth between three and six feet in diameter on about 60 feet of line in order to pick up the smaller sea fauna. Number two, several fishing lines of about 150 feet in length, ending in three casts of brass wire attached to a large hook with some sort of artificial bait for tunny fish. Number three, a small spear or harpoon with which to catch the sea perch which are attracted to flotsam and a few brightly polished hooks which these fish will often take without any bait. Number four, a large harpoon with which to catch any of the larger fish which collect around wreckage. The prince had ended his report by stating firmly that with this knowledge and equipment, it should be possible for the survivors of a shipwreck to maintain life until help arrived. My next problem was to show that the sea provides not only food, but a sufficient and balanced diet. The ocean supplies three things, seawater, fish, and plankton. This latter group is made up of the millions of microscopic creatures which are to be found in any sample of fresh or salt water. They fall into two main groups, the zooplankton, i.e. the planktonic animals and fish roe, and the phytoplankton, or planktonic plants, composed mainly of algae or microscopic seaweed. Plankton is of enormous biological importance, as all animal life in the sea is ultimately dependent on it for existence. It is, moreover, the principal food of whales, the largest existing mammals. The average composition of seawater, taken from Jean Rouch's Traite de Oceanographie Physique, is as follows: the amounts of salts dissolved in one gallon of average seawater, sodium chloride, forty-five ounces; magnesium chlorate, five point six ounces; magnesium sulfate, three point three ounces; calcium sulfate, two point one ounces; potassium chloride, one ounce. Calcium carbonate, 0.2 ounces. The chemical analysis of such fish as I was likely to catch during my voyage gives the following figures for the three principal constituents of water, fat, and protein, taken from Criache Les Protides Liquides du Passant. Principal constituents of fish, percentages by weight. Array, 76% water, 18% protein, 1.6% fat. Basking shark, water, 15% protein, 16% fat. Dolphin fish, 77% water, 17% protein, 3% fat. Sardine, 78% water, 16% protein, 2% fat. Anchovy, 76% water, 21% protein, 1% fat. Bass, 77% water, 18% protein, 2.5% fat. Mackerel, 68% water, 17% protein, 5% fat. Fish roe, 48% water, 11% protein, 1% fat. With plankton, the composition is much more variable and much less known, and I spent most of my time in concentrating on this in an attempt to track down some of the elements of nutrition which I knew we were still lacking. I was in the position of a man who has been given a limited amount of material and is told, With that, you must build a house. So I set to work. The principal problem was water. Everyone knows that drinking is more important than eating. Ten days without water results inevitably in death. But a man can survive for 30 days without food. Where was I to get my fresh water from? I soon reached the conclusion that the fish themselves are going to provide me with all I needed. The previous table shows that a fish is made up of between 50 and 80% by weight of water, moreover it is fresh water and this was the liquid on which i intended to rely against thirst have you ever had to eat fish with some careless cook who has forgotten to season it is completely insipid i provided by analysis that the flesh of fish is greatly inferior in sodium chloride common salt to that of mammals with one or two exceptions to which i shall refer again when considering the subject of proteins if only i could extract the liquid from the flesh I would get all the water I needed from between 6 and 7 pounds of fish a day. The problem was to extract it, which was not a laboratory question. But what was to happen if I caught no fish? This is often the case during the 3 or 4 days after a ship sinks, and that is the critical period. If there is nothing to drink, the body's water content will decline steadily until death by dehydration occurs on about the 10th day. Any supply of water or fresh liquid which becomes available at a late stage of this process needs to exceed the day's basic requirement, if it is to restore the body to a normal condition. The survivor has to catch up on his body's water content, and not just satisfy his day-to-day needs. The essential thing, therefore, is to maintain the body's water content at its proper level during those first few days before fish can be caught. The only answer is to drink seawater. Well, that's the end of today's chapter. and We're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going around. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mates level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month, which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.